title of the sermon is called Jesus Calms the Troubled Heart. Um, first of all, in these last two Sundays, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful that God has called us to, to build this church on the preaching of God's word. And um, not the preacher of God's word, the preaching of God's word. And so then, so God brings Alan to the pulpit, Hugh to the pulpit, Eric to the pulpit. There's, there's more leaders in the future that you're going to experience the, the teaching ministry through. And they served us so well in John chapter 13. I mean, what a, what, what a wonderful thing to pause and stop and consider Christ's servant heart and his humility and his love. And then uh, just great stuff because in seeing Jesus and his character more clearly, it always has a revelatory impact on us. It always shows us about our hearts, right? So when we see Jesus more clearly, we see ourselves more clearly, and we see, hmm, I'm not that servant-hearted, and I'm not very humble, and, and I can tend to not be loving. So isn't it great that God would give us grace through that teaching to grow to be more like our Savior? So what a wonderful thing. So thankful. Please, if you haven't thanked those guys, please thank them for their teaching ministry to us. So this morning, we're going to hear Jesus tell the disciples one more time, and I, you hear why I say that in a minute, to not let your hearts be troubled. If, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you might go, uh, you must be really tired. Are you going back and re-preaching what you preached three weeks ago? Um, if, if you remember, we actually address Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. That was three weeks ago. But it's up, it comes up again in chapter 14. Actually, get ready. It comes up twice in chapter 14. So three times in the last week of Jesus' life, he looks at his disciples and he says, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he looks at him again. Oh, guys, don't let your heart be troubled. And then one more time, he looks at him again. Hey, don't let your heart be troubled. You know, and I, I thought about that and I just thought, it'd be easy, I guess. I guess we could just summarize it and say, refer to previous sermon, you know, <laughs> I guess, you know, and, and just kind of go on to something else. But God uniquely, divinely inspired the Apostle John, who's been such a good pastor to us in this book, to keep repeating that message again and again. And do you know why? Anybody been troubled in the last three weeks since you heard that message? Oh, man. I've been troubled so much since that message. And we'll be troubled tomorrow. And isn't it great that Jesus doesn't go, didn't you listen? I can't, I can't believe. I told you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Not a hint of that in this, is it? Not a hint. He comes with, the, with just as big a smile, just a, his arms spread open just as wide to say again, oh. <laughs> also, the Spanish word came to my mind. That's weird uh, because I'm Arabic. So, um, you know, but, so that word, oh, pobrecito, pobrecito, <laughs> right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. So let's look to see. He gives re different reasons why. So we're going to unpack each time. We need each time. And he gives different reasons why we shouldn't, our hearts shouldn't be troubled. So let's read this divinely inspired, inerrant 
sufficient, authoritative word of the living God this morning. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I love the disciples. <laughs> they make me feel way better about my questions. Um, so here's Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me, that I am in the Father. And the Father is in me. Or else believe in account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Oh, Lord. We're so thankful you're a speaking God. Because, Lord, there's troubled hearts here this morning. And so how timely and kind of you to speak in such a timely and, and for some of us, even a prophetic way. Little did some people know that you were going to actually speak directly to the need of their heart. And little did some of us else know that we would need this word today because of tomorrow. So Lord, help us to hide this word in our hearts. We want to live in the good of it. And we want to believe in you as the hope and source of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I don't know if you were to rank the things that chart, I don't know where this would rank on your list, but one of my troubled heart times is whenever I have to say goodbye. I hate goodbyes. Uh, whenever I leave for any kind of a trip, I, babe, I hate saying goodbye to you. Sometimes I think Jan is kind of relieved and says, oh, go on. <laughs> have a good trip. Oh, I hate saying goodbye to her. And even though my sons and daughters-in-law and grandkids live in other cities, it's the weirdest thing. Somehow when I go on longer trips, somehow it's weird. I just feel like I'm sort of saying goodbye to them too. There's still so much in my heart and in my mind. 
um, my sister, my precious sister, Lisa, lives in Phoenix. And I hate just saying goodbye to her on the phone. You know, I don't get to see her very much. And I hate the goodbyes on the phone to her. I hate saying goodbye to you. I don't know if you noticed in the last newsletter, I snuck in a little comment about how much I love you. I hate saying goodbye to you. You're my church family. You're family to me. I hated saying goodbye to Barnabas. <laughs> I hated saying goodbye to all the pastors and their precious wives that Steve and I were privileged to meet and serve in Nepal. So just about every time I travel, I try to make a point to contact all the people in my circle and say, hey, did I tell you lately that I love you? <laughs> because I just don't, if this is the last time we're going to talk, I'd really like you to know where you stand, where you stood with me. I would really like you to know how much I love you. I'd like you to know what a delight you were to my life. And so I've always tried to make that happen. Um, that's what I was trying to do in the newsletter. I, I just don't want to leave any doubt with people about my heart toward them. I don't want to leave any doubt. So many of us have questions, don't we? So many, so many of us had to say goodbye to people, and we just didn't know where we stood with them. Because the, the, there really wasn't a goodbye. There was an argument. There was, there was, a, there was a, a dissension in the family. Oh, man, let's be purpose, purposeful about constantly letting people know how much we love them. It not only troubles the heart to say goodbye to people, do you notice it also troubles the heart to say goodbye maybe to a dream that you've had? Something, a dream for your life, and it just doesn't seem to be coming true. And that could be so many things. That could be career. That could be single to marriage. That could be married couple to having kids. The heart of ministry. There's so many things that the heart can be troubled about because you're, you fear that you're having to say goodbye to something that you thought would be a better future for you. How about speaking of future, how many times are our hearts troubled about the future of our kids? The future of our grandkids? Or, or to say goodbye to the job or the college that you thought you most needed to be successful? Or to say goodbye to a cure for a chronic health problem? that you endured. If it troubles the heart so much to say goodbye, so now in all the things that we just talked about, let's raise the scale. Let's raise the bar. If it troubles the heart to say goodbye to imperfect, sometimes sinful, broken people, can you imagine how troubling it would have been to say goodbye to someone you had spent the last three years with who was perfect? perfect in love, perfect in wisdom. His teaching was perfect. His compassion was perfect. His forgiveness was perfect. His patience was perfect. And now he's saying, I'm leaving you. That would be a, a rock, a world rocker. A, I don't even know how to put that in a sentence. That would rock our world. What would that have been like? Essentially, You've been walking with God. You've been walking with God. And he's saying farewell. I need to leave you. It's almost time. 
I don't know how troubling that it would have been to those 12. And then he adds a few more things that Hugh and Alan were teaching us about. How about this? To hear that of the 12 who had been following him, one was going to commit treason in, in betraying him. And the other, the loudmouth kind of guy, the guy who was sort of the leader of the gang, besides Jesus, he's going to deny him three times? There's a lot to be troubled about here. Can you imagine how troubling it would have been to say goodbye what they hoped would be a better future without Caesar on the throne? They thought Jesus was going to commandeer the throne. There goes the future. Can you imagine how troubled their hearts would have been? Really, there's so much similarity between their troubled hearts and ours, isn't there? But they had it worse. I think they had it worse. And Jesus comes and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Our main point of the message this morning is Jesus calms our troubled hearts with a future promise and a present hope. So think about the, what the text we read. See, see if that resonates with you from the scripture. Is the main point of the sermon, the main point of the text. Jesus calms troubled hearts with a future promise and a present hope. Let's unpack it. The first point is this morning, Christ calms troubled hearts with a promise of an eternal home. So verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Literally, you know what the word means? Troubled means, <laughs> it just literally means it, stirred and shaken. Now, I'm not talking about a martini or something like that. I'm not, you know, I don't, although I've never drank a martini in my life. I don't know what, but I think I've heard people talk about, do you want to, I don't know what, I don't know what, this is, I shouldn't, that, that was not in my notes. I don't know why I let it come out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> But I don't know about you, when I think of stirred and shaken, I get a little nauseous. <laughs> I just, but isn't that the way a troubled heart feels? There's something really literal to that. Don't you, isn't there something, you know, a troubled heart certainly is, is in your mind. Your thoughts are not on the promises of God. They're not on the faithfulness of Christ. They're not fixed on the cross and what he's already accomplished and all those kind of things. They're on so many other problems that are ruling and reigning in your heart and, and mind. But there's the corresponding feeling to it, isn't there? And it feels like stirred and shaken. I thought that was just very, very interesting. It's such a loving exhortation by Jesus because I think, I hope there's hope even in this statement because he's lovingly ruling over everything in the universe. So he's telling you, you're not a victim to your circumstances. I'm ruling over your universe. It's my universe. I've invited you to live in it, right? It's my universe. I'm ruling over it. I mean, just take a minute to think. How many times do I see myself as a victim of my circumstances? How about this? I'm a victim of other people's decisions. That's, and that's, and it's, I'm so troubled by it. How about this? I'm a victim of other people's actions against me. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You're not a victim. 
I am providentially and lovingly ruling over your world. That's one of the things he's telling us about. And I think this is helpful too. He's telling us that he will give us grace not to be ruled by your emotions. Anybody ruled by emotion this week? Anybody ruled by anger this week? Anybody ruled by frustration, impatience, fear, and worry? This is really good news for us, isn't it? Let not your heart be troubled. And so as you will see, the bottom line answer Jesus gives for the troubled heart, and I ask you to go back and count this up, six times in 14 verses, Jesus says, believe in me. (laughs) Believe in me. Believe in me. Believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. I think that was six. I hope. The first reason Jesus calls us to believe in him is because he promises that we will have an eternal home with him. The mission that God gave the Father, or that, that God the Father planned and God the Son accomplished, opens the door for heaven. Don't forget that. You know, we, 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 we focus on the cross, and so we should. But remember, there, there was a destination beyond that. So God's plan, Jesus' accomplishment, is opening the door for where we most want to be and need to be. And that's spending eternity with God. I want you to notice when Jesus says that he is going to prepare a place for you. So if we were just having a small group meeting and and the small group leader said, what do you think that means? So again, we don't want to run our small groups like like that because it's not really what we think. What does the Bible mean when it says that? That's what we're trying to to reach out. But your first knee-jerk reaction, think about all the sermons you've heard. You've heard this passage before. So when you think of Jesus going to prepare a place for you, what do you think? I'd love to hear your answers afterwards. I'll tell you mine uh, afterwards. But what does that mean? Is he in heaven right now as the general contractor for the houses and neighborhoods we'll be living in? Is he picking out flooring and carpet and granite and backsplash and paint and wallpaper? <laughs> is, is this just a better version of HGTV? Heavenly garden television. Not, you get, oh, I know that was a terrible joke. I just need to wake a few of you up. I just, you know... Um, Oh, my goodness. I got to tell you, I literally heard this years ago. One prosperity preacher said that God gave him a vision of the mansion that God was preparing for him. And he was on this beautiful hillside, just beautiful hillside, overlooking all, overlooking all the smaller mansions, I'm sure. <laughs> and so this beautiful mansion, and this is what he said. And God showed me he's preparing the, that place for me. And, and God knows I love antiques in this life. So, so God, so just think of this. Antiques in the new heaven and the new earth. <laughs> I mean, and this is a followed preacher. Ellen, Ellen probably knows who I'm talking about because he's from Louisiana. Um, anyway, so, so the, all these antiques, the, because what a loving God. He's prepared such a place for him. Um, sorry, Mr. Prosperity Preacher. I don't think that's what the text is saying. 
What Jesus meant when he said, I must go and prepare a place for us, was that he had to go to the cross. <laughs> I got to tell you, that's not always my first thought when I've read this passage. He had to go to the cross. That was the foundational way he was going to prepare a place for us. It was his death and it was his resurrection that opens the way for the followers of Christ to go to heaven. Oh, man. The reason that Jesus said that the place is not yet prepared is that he hadn't finished living his perfectly obedient life, right? He's going to live the life we could not live. He's going to obey every command of God, both, um, oh, Alan, what's the theological words for this? Uh, uh, passively and actively, whatever. Pa passively is that he was the sin bearer, right? He is bearing the wrath of God. But actively, he is consciously obeying every commandment of God with a pure heart. Why do we need that? Because we couldn't be counted righteous in him if he had not. So he's not finished obeying the Lord on this side of heaven. He's not yet suffered and died on the cross. He's not yet overcome and defeated Satan through the cross. He not yet satisfied the wrath of God in our place. He not, not yet ascended into heaven and taken his seat at the right hand of God. He was going to prepare the place by accomplishing all of those things. Do you see how easy it is for us to get our eyes off the cross and onto our imaginations of what a better future might be. Get our eyes off of Jesus, who is the better future. And you'll see, we'll see that in just a minute. So I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this because it affected my heart powerfully uh, as I study. Because all my heart has been troubled lots in the past few weeks. And this has brought such comfort to my heart about what Jesus has already done on the cross. He has now prepared a place for me because it is finished, he said. <laughs> it is finished. And he was raised from the dead. And he prepared a place for me. And he did for you too, amen? Oh, it's so cool. In my father's house, let's talk about that. Well, is there a place? Well, yes, there is a place. I can't help, Phil, where are you? So this is how long Phil has been in this church, too. Phil and Vanessa have been here for many, many years. Many, many years ago. You don't know that Phil is a musical artiste, do you? So a lot of you don't know. B.I.C. And that was a new guy who said B.I.C. That was it. It was Angela? Oh, it was Angela. I thought, I thought it was Jordan Bellamy. Uh, I know. So years ago, and Phil, Vanessa, was it a duet? I can't remember if it was a duet or was it, it was just Phil. And he may have just been visiting from Michigan at that time when Phil got up here with his precious, innocent face. And he, he takes the audio adrenaline song, Big House, and he takes it to another level. And I just can just remember, my boys were right here, and I can just remember, we're kind of rocking out, big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, a big, big, come on, lots and lots of food. This is really sickening. If I didn't, if you weren't nauseous before, my little attempt at dancing is really making you <laughs> nauseous here. So it's a sweet memory, Phil. It's such a sweet memory. Well... 
the Father's house isn't so much a building as much as it is the Father's presence in heaven. So until Jesus returns, he's speaking about either heaven, if we die before he comes back, or speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a place for sure, a real place. Heaven is a real place. The new heavens and the new new earth is a real place. And so I think he's saying to anybody here who just thinks, man, I have, I have committed a sin that I never thought I would commit. And I just don't know. Maybe, maybe this one disqualifies me. I don't know. Maybe Jesus got a little tick that there was no room in the end for him. So maybe, the, maybe there's a limited vacancy in his end for me. And I think he's saying, if you have trusted in my blood shed for your sins, if you've repented from your self-controlled, self-sufficient, self-ruled life, and you've trusted in my grace to save you fully and finally, there's room for you. There's room for you. And it's not squeeze you in room, right? It's not, well, you're going to have to share the room with someone else. It's not that. The room word rooms literally means permanent abiding places. Permanent abiding places. That gives real uh, color to what Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, that we live in this body he compared to a tent. <laughs> and the older I get, the more tenty I'm seeing my body is. And he even called the world that we live in really no better than a tent. In other words, it's temporary and fragile and easily broken. It's not permanent. It's not permanent. I'm feeling the decay with every passing week that comes from getting older. We long to put on something that's permanent. We long to be some place that just abides forever. We long to be somewhere that's lasting. Feast of Tabernacles that the Jews um, had uh, celebrated year after year was a really great illustration of this because you remember the Feast of Tabernacles was them commemorating all of the years of wilderness wandering when they, they had to wander and then live in a tent and then there's time to wander you know, and, and travel again. Then they would live in a tent and, and they're, they're just longing for that day when they could move into a permanent place, right? And what was the permanent place? Permanent place is that God would provide houses in a land filled with milk and honey. So there's this, this demarcation of time. Is I'm, I'm very aware of how fragile and temporary life is. We live in this tent. We got soaked last night by the rain. Hail broke everything down that we tried to do. The sun beat so heavily upon us. You, we, the best shade we could try to manufacture isn't manufacturing enough. And can you imagine being moved out of a tent into a building? Years, thousand years ago, I led the youth ministry here, and, and uh, we did this thing where we had the kids over to the house, and we, we did tent camping in our backyard. And we talked a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles, but, but what it really pointed to. And so the kids all slept in tents, and we tried to make the tents not great, right? That, that it wouldn't be very comfortable, and, and it, you would know that this wasn't... We're hoping, this sounds so terrible, we're hoping they wouldn't sleep well 
right? That, that it was just no air mattresses, no fans and air conditioning. You know, it wasn't glamping, right? It wasn't glamping. And they, we got up in the morning, and there, all of us, I was grumbly. They were, well, how'd you sleep? Nah, I didn't sleep, my way. Dude, that, that dog in the other yard, just blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And, and so we took them into the back porch, and we did our devotions. And we talked about, what would it have been like to move from this temporary dwelling that the Jews had in the Feast of Tabernacle into a permanent building? You could even put that about the, 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 the tabernacle of worship that they carried with them in the wilderness and going from that fragile tabernacle into a temple. You, you're seeing this sense, guys, what will it be like when, when the Lord saves us from this decaying tent and gives us a new body that will live forever in a place with him that will live forever. You see why he says, let not your hearts be troubled. There's so much here to stand on, so much promise. The many rooms, what about the many rooms? Well, in the Jewish culture, once a man proposed marriage to a woman, he would leave her to go be with his father, and the two of them would prepare a place for the new couple. So it's important to point out that it would be a part of the father's house. So that, I, that, that illustration I gave you about the prosperity preacher always drove me crazy. Because essentially, if you picture it, he's, I guess he's building, <laughs> he has this vision of this house somehow outside of the New Jerusalem. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't always think, you guys, I have spent way too long without Jesus. When I get to heaven, I don't want to be out in the country. I want to be with him. I, I mean, if you think about your spouse when you're away. I don't want to get back into my house. I want to get back with my wife. When I go to Dallas to see my kids, I don't want to just go into their houses. Or not. I want to be with them. That's what, that's what it's talking about. He, God is making a place for us. There is a place for us. But it's with him. Not separated from him. Now, don't interpret that as like, so is it like a dormitory? Now, you're going, you're taking this, not where it's supposed to go. It's not a condo, you know, or something in some apartment complex. It's a permanent place with our Father. It's seeing our Savior face to face. He's wanting to give us the, the sense of the greatest welcome home <laughs> that you will ever, ever hear. I, I got glimpses of that with my dad. I oh, love my dad. He lived in Arizona. We lived here. And whenever we go to see him in Arizona, he always prepared a place for us. And this is what he did. He, he would call Jan. What, what, what foods do the boys like lately? What are their favorite drinks, favorite foods, and all this kind of stuff? So we'd walk into his house. So this is where the kissing thing comes from. It's from my dad. I'll blame him, right? So blame him if you don't like my holy kisses. And, um, and oh my gosh, kiss and kiss and kiss and kiss. Dad, it's so good to see you. Oh my gosh. And he's, uh, he's holding my face. I'm holding his face. <laughs> and, and then he says, hey, go check your bedroom. So we go into the bedroom, and the bed, you couldn't even see the, the bed coverings. It was covered with cereal and candy and, and this and that and all this. And then there was always a special section. There was not a section for me. <laughs> I'm just realizing that. 
<laughs> there was a special section for Jan. And it was money. It was money. And my dad, it was always, I want you to go buy a new dress, new shoes. You know, we're going to give you time to yourself. It was, it was great welcome home, wasn't it? If my sinful dad knew how to welcome us home, how much more our Heavenly Father when, when he welcomes us into that eternal abiding place. And, and let's, let's remember that meant Jesus is the center of it all. So look at verse 3. When, when Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you. Would you say that with me? To myself, that where I am, you may be also. It could have been, I think if we were just kind of assuming what the next word that's coming, I think we could have assumed, hey, when I come again, I'm going to take you to heaven. It's not what he says, deacon. It's way better than that. He's going to take us to himself, that you may be where I am, you may be also. What, a what would heaven be if Jesus wasn't there? Anthony, where are you? I, thought, I think I saw you. Anthony, so my precious brother is a very kind and gracious man. It's just, I, I, Anthony moved here from Pearland. Um, and in that transition, he had to be working here before he had a residence yet and found a place to live. And she, he stayed with Avampados, who I'm sure treated him way better. <laughs> Yeah, I did. Um, so I said, Anthony, come on, come stay with us. Come stay with me, I think is what I said. So Anthony comes in. Jan was already out of town. And so Anthony comes into our house, and I welcome him. And I was trying to do like my dad a little bit. I'm, Anthony, what's your favorite food? Do you like coffee? Do you blah, blah, blah. And Anthony was so humble. And oh, don't worry about me. And all this kind of stuff. So Anthony, come stay with me. And the, the next day, I leave Midland for six days. <laughs> Now, the illustration probably falls apart because that might have been a blessing to Anthony to not have me in the house. But it's just, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's really not the house. It's the people. It's the person. And that's what God is getting across to us here. Guys, this world is not our home. We're sojourners in this broken world. We're passing through this world as gospel ambassadors, seeking to bring him as much glory as possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ in our every word and in our every deed, making much of Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is not merely preparing a place for us. I think there's another reason we can, we can say our hearts shouldn't be troubled. He's not just preparing a place for us. Did you know? He's preparing you for the place. Think about that. What's Jesus doing even right now at the right hand of God? He's interceding for us, isn't he? What, what's one of the prayers he's praying? Probably what he prayed for Peter. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. I think he's probably praying that for every believer. What a promise, huh? That God is going to keep those he saved. 
So even now he's praying, and we won't get to it this morning, but he's going he's gonna to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit comes to abide in us and with us and transform us. And all of the wonderful blessings that we'll study in just a little bit because he's not just preparing the place for us. He's preparing us for the place that we might get enjoy it more, enjoy his presence more, starting now. Not just, well, in the sweet by and by, starting now, he's wanting to do that wonderful work. J.C. Ryle put it this way. This is in your notes. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. The greatest preparation we needed was to be born again. A place which which we shall find Christ himself has made ready for true Christians. He's prepared it by procuring a right for every sinner who believes to enter in. None can stop us and say we have no business there. He has prepared it by going before us as our head and representative and taking possession of it for all the members of his mystical body. As our forerunner, he has marched in leading captivity captive. And he has planted his banner in the land of glory. He has prepared it by carrying our names with him as our high priest. Remember the names of, of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel were on the breastplate that was over the, over the heart of the high priest. And if an earthly high priest would carry names of tribes over his heart, how much more? How much more is Jesus carrying your name upon his heart right now? As into the Holy of Holies and making angels ready to receive us. Those angels are probably going, Billy? Are you sure? So he's probably having to do a lot of work preparing the angels for my entrance. They're probably freaking out. Those who enter heaven will find they are neither unknown or unexpected. Oh, of course he troubles, he, he calms our troubled hearts by promising us his future love. Isn't that really the joy of marriage? I really try to work hard whenever I do a wedding ceremony. I work with that couple hard to say, your vows, your vows are not to be, how many times you've been to a wedding and the, the guy says, oh baby, I couldn't live without you and I'll just, you, you complete me baby. And you know, and all the, uh, and, so hang on. I just realized some of you may have done that. And if that, it's okay. I, I didn't get it either. I, I probably did. Yeah, I probably did. Nothing wrong with expressing emotion, but emotion are not commitments. Expressing emotions are not expressing commitments. A covenant commitment is not the promise of present love. A covenant commitment is the promise of future love. Death till death do you part love. That's what a covenant is. That's what Jesus has done with us. Future love is the real security of the believer's heart. It's present too. We'll talk about that in a second. So Christ calms. So, so, so the promise of an eternal future calms troubled hearts. The last points are short. Christ calms troubled hearts with a pathway through life and death. He tells his disciples that they actually know the way they're going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How can we know the way that you're going? And Thomas, he's, he's, uh, Thomas I guess, thought that two, one of two things. Either he thought Jesus was about to give him GPS coordinates, right? Because isn't that the way we do things? 
right? I giggle too. Because so much of my asking God for direction has to do with geography and circumstances and employment and where to live. And it's very topographical. I'm sorry that I do that, Lord. So Thomas is just being like us. Can you give me the GPS coordinates so that we can know how to get there? And Jesus is saying, you don't need to know the map. You need to know the master. You need to know me. And then here it is. I, it's the sixth I am statement of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, this is one of the clearest statements of the reality of absolute truth. I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to go off on, uh, on a chase a rabbit here too much. But this is one of the clearest statements of the reality of absolute truth in the Bible. And I got to tell you something. I think, I think the church is being robbed. The church is cowering. Many preachers are cowering back from standing on this. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So that's not only evangelistically important. I think the devil's really done a number on a lot of us. Because absolute truth from a loving God is comforting. I mean, how many of the things that plague your heart are because of all the uncertainties? What if this person doesn't keep his promise? What if the job they offer me isn't what I thought it would be? There's so many things that we just live in this realm. Isn't it great that we have a God who gives us absolute truth about who he is and absolute truth about us? And absolute truth about what he's done to reconcile us to himself. What a God. Don't let yourself be robbed in that. When you're talking, and this could be whether it's an atheist or somebody who is in Islam or a Buddhist or Hindu or whoever it is. We can't back away from that. I, listen. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if somehow we thought somehow it's unloving to say there's only one way. Oh, man, we're getting messed up. It's unloving to say there's more than one way if there's only one way. Guys, God, give us courage. Give us a gospel-strengthened backbone as we share his word with our world. We, we don't want to compromise that truth. And so Jesus is calling us to believe this. And it's not just like believing a fact. He's saying saving faith in me is what will get you the Father. Saving faith in me will get you the Father. But saving faith is not just like agreeing on uh, a historical fact. It's not like I believe, oh, George Washington existed. I believe that. That's faith. But you know, the, the difference between saving faith in Jesus and, and faith in George Washington is that when I put faith in Jesus, you guys, he joins himself to me. Is it any wonder then that he's the way, the truth, and life? I'm joined to him. Of course, I'm going to know 
him as the way. I'm going to know him as the truth. I'm going to know him as the life. Too many people are treating Jesus like George Washington. Oh, I believe he existed. There's no union. There's never been repentance. There's never been faith. There's no union. It's a union with God that saves us through the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf and his resurrection. He's alive today. And, it's, and he's a great shepherd. So as the, tr- the way, the truth, and the life in union with us, of course he's going to lead us all the way home, right? So good. I recently heard an example of what it means to have God as your life. So we could unpack all those things, the truth, the way, and the life. But this one, this one affected me. And the guy was talking about going back to Adam and God before sin and how Adam's identity was that God is life. That was it. God is life. That's Adam's identity. Jesus comes to redeem this. He comes to say, I'm the life. I'm going to be even better than, than what Adam had. But back to Adam, no sin. God is life. He couldn't, he couldn't conceive. Oh, oh, would, would this be a great thing? He couldn't conceive of a day, of a minute passing that didn't include the thought of God. Oh, they, were, they, they walked together. They, he, his identity was that he had God and the life of God. That was his identity. And it would be so powerful that it would be, so let's say somehow we could somehow beam back. <laughs> and we talk to Adam and we say, Adam, how are you doing today? I think this is how Adam would answer. Oh, thanks for asking. God and me are doing just fine. Can you, is that the way you answer? It's not the way I answer. But isn't that the reality when Jesus has joined himself to me? How you doing, Billy? Well, there's a lot of problems out there. So I'm not going to be pie in the sky or rose-colored glasses. But Jesus and me, we're, we're fine. We're fine. That's one of the blessings of him saying he's the way, the truth, and the life. The third point is that Christ calms troubled hearts with his presence now. He doesn't just give us a future promise. He gives us present hope. Verse 8, Philip said to them, well, okay, Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. Not, not, could you not show us the Father someday? I know that someday, I guess from what I'm hearing you say, that we'll get to, to experience him someday. Uh, if you're leaving, it would really help us to see that now. Could we see that now? Uh, that would be sufficient. That would be enough. So I don't know. I don't know what's happening here. Was he asking for some sort of supernatural manifestation? Maybe a miracle? Uh, maybe this amazing miracle? Maybe something like Moses asking to see God's glory? Was it that kind of, is that what it was in his mind? I don't know. Maybe another kind of transfiguration, only this time it, it wasn't wouldn't Jesus, it, being, seeing Jesus in his glory and, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe this would be some sort of fatherly expression of that. I don't know what was in his mind. Maybe all of that was in his mind. But if Philip is asking for some sort of spiritual experience, so bring this back to your heart. How many times we're asking God, God, if you would just, if you would just give me this experience, if, if you would just answer this prayer, then I would believe in you. Do you realize Philip is asking for much less than Jesus wants to give him? He's asking for much less than Jesus has already given him. Why? 
because he's already seen the Father. The Father's been with him the whole time, right? And that's why Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? As a son of God, Jesus perfectly reveals who his heavenly father is and what he's like. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Believe, Philip, in my union with the father. It's a union so close that you've seen and heard. Jesus points to his words and to his actions. You've seen, uh, you've heard his words every day you heard my words. You've seen his works every time you saw my works. And six times Jesus says again and again, he and the father, he and the father, he and the father. He's really trying to get that across to us. He's here. And he's as close to you as I am. What a joy. I guess if you want to put this in a short sentence, I've heard this in different ways, but how about this one? No Jesus, no Father with N-O-N-O. No Jesus, no Father. Now change the no to K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no Father. Let me just throw a little out there. Next, next, is it next week Father's Day or two weeks? Two weeks? Father's Day is an adventure for a lot of people, isn't it? Because sin is in the world and not every dad has been a good dad. Or maybe if father was, died when, you know, when you were really young. And, uh, and I've heard people say, I just have trouble believing in a loving God because of the kind of dad I had. And I, I try to tell people, listen, a dad is supposed to be imitating the father. So don't blame a bad imitation. Don't, don't blame God for this bad imitation. How about let's get the bad imitation behind you and actually let's go to the real deal. When Jesus said, I and the father are one, this is a way I think that God can heal a wounded heart from the loss of a father or from the hurt or, or maybe abuse of a bad dad. Because now Jesus comes in and says, I will show you a father like you never thought you could have. This father will heal your broken heart. This father will never betray you or abandon you. I hope that's an encouraging word, maybe for someone today. The last one is this. Christ calms troubled hearts with a divine purpose for our lives. Have you ever noticed that when our hearts are really troubled, we're tempted to stop doing the things that we were supposed to be doing? How many troubled hearts have chosen to watch TV instead of turning to the Bible or to prayer or sharing your burden with a Christian friend? How many people troubled with depression, and I've told you that can be one of my battles, have chosen not to go to church or to go to work or even to go to school? It's crazy when we stop doing the things, we're troubled, our hearts are troubled, and then we stop doing things we're supposed to be doing, and we're just adding trouble to the trouble. Because now I'm getting behind on all the things I'm supposed to be doing. Now I'm feeling guilty about what I'm not doing. And I'm hiding from accountability. And there's just so many crazy things that go on there. 
And isn't it interesting that Jesus includes one of the ways he calms troubled hearts is by reminding us we have a divine purpose from him. In addition to all that we've already studied, he wants us to see there's a divine purpose for our life. And he describes this purpose as that we will do the works of Jesus and even greater works would we do because he goes to be with the Father. Well, what is that talking about? It's easy to think that this means that we're going to feed multitudes with a few fish right, and pieces of bread. Or we're going to walk on water. We're going to heal the sick. We're going to raise the dead. And God may indeed at times use our lives in those categories in miraculous ways. But what are the greater works? What could be greater than those? Those are pretty outstanding. <laughs> How about Pentecost? Never before, through the ministry of the gospel, were 3,000 saved at one time. How about Gentiles getting saved in mass when there was hardly a trickle of Gentiles being saved in the Old Covenant? How about churches being planted, the gospel going into all the world with the, dest with the goal of reaching every people group on earth? None of that happened in Jesus' time. He, he began the works leading up to the cross and redemption. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might, the book of Acts, this is, the, what does he say? This is the document, documentary, this is the word, all that, all that I said before in the book of Luke, Luke is saying, that's what Jesus began to do. The book of Acts is his ongoing work now through the church and through gospel ministry. There's great work for us to do. And salvations, guys, I will say this till I die. Seeing a soul saved will be far better than walking on water. Seeing a soul saved is far better than feeding 5,000. There's no greater gift than salvation. And God wants it to make it global. That's why he says it's a, it's a greater work. That's why he says it's a greater work. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? Is, is living in the purpose God designed for you, is that actually one of the ways God's comforting your troubled heart? Let me give you a couple illustrations to close there. There's a dear pastor named Tim Shorey um, who is, unless God gives him a miracle, uh, will, will die of cancer. One of my dearest friends, and one of the blessings that God used him to do for me was about seven years ago, I was this close to writing my resignation notice. Church was going through hard times. I, you know, I've been here 30 years, so this is how I think. So I've been here, the, well, Hugh's been here the longest, but I'll just put this on me. I could make a joke here, but it's not funny. Um, <laughs> So here's what, I, I've been here the longest, so I'm the common denominator. If the church is bad, I'm bad. If the church is failing, I'm the failure. You know, very man-centered. There's a lot of ego and pride and, and, and sin in that, but it's a very condemning way to live, you know. And the church had gone through a very hard time. We, we saw departures of many people. And I, I wanted to accept responsibility. I, I have to be willing to stand before God and accept responsibility for the spiritual condition of a church. Every elder does. I need to as well. And so we went to Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference and I had breakfast with Tim. And I said, Tim, I'm, 
uh, my heart is troubled. And uh, I'm thinking of quitting. I, I think that maybe this is as far as I should go. I, I'm doing, I'm hurting the church more than I'm helping the church. And Tim said this. So such simple advice and wonderful. He said, Billy, do you believe that God is a big enough God that he could clearly show you without a doubt if you were supposed to quit? <laughs> now I'm feeling like I'm seven years old, right? You know how sometimes we ask our kids those questions and I go, the answer's obvious. Yes, <laughs> I believe that God could clearly show me if I should quit. Next question. Has God clearly shown you that you should quit? No, sir. He has not clearly shown me that I should quit. He said, Billy, your thoughts of quitting are hurting you more than the situations you're walking through. That's what's hurting you. If the Lord hasn't shown you that it's time to go, you know what you're to do? Put your hands to the plow. Put your hands to the plow. And you keep plowing until Jesus shows you otherwise. Surprise, I'm still here. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Divine purpose actually is therapeutic. It's, that's, I, I know, that's not, maybe not the best word, but it, it calms the troubled heart. Let me, let me give you one more kind of a thing about that. I just really felt strong that maybe this is, this is for some unique folks today. Um, a very similar point that John Piper makes. And, and th this will, yeah. Um, Stephen, you want to come up? close with the song. This is a devotional by John Piper, and it's based on Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. And the scripture is, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And this is what Piper says about it. This came across around the time Tim gave me that counsel. So, um, there is nothing sad about sowing seed. It takes no more work than reaping. The days can be beautiful. There can be great hope of harvest. Yet the psalm speaks of sowing in tears. It says that someone goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. You ever go to work with, and you really just want to cry? So why are they weeping? I think the reason is not that sowing is sad or that sowing is hard. I think the reason has nothing to do with sowing. <laughs> sowing is simply the work that has to be done, even when there are things in life that make us cry. The crops won't wait until we finish crying or solving all of our problems. If we're going to eat next winter, we must get out in the field and sow the seed, whether we're crying or not. If you do that, the promise of the psalm is that you will reap with shouts of joy. You will come home with shouts of joy, bringing your sheaves with you. 
not because the tears of sowing produce the joy of weeping, but because the sheer sowing produces the reaping. And you need to remember this, even when your tears tempt you to give up. So here's the lesson. When there are simple, straightforward jobs to be done, let's put gospel, gospel work to be done. And you're full of sadness and tears are flowing easily. Go ahead and do the job with tears. Be realistic. I love this. Say to your tears, tears, I feel you. (laughs) You make me want to quit life. But there's a field to be sown, dishes to be washed, car to be fixed, sermons to be written. And then say, on the basis of the word of God, tears, I know that you will not stay forever. The very fact that I just do my work, tears and all, will end in bringing a harvest of blessing. So go ahead, tears, flow if you must. (laughs) But I believe, though I do not yet see it or feel it fully, I believe that the simple joy of my sowing will bring sheaves of harvest and my tears will be turned into joy. Let's stand.